Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. Okay, guys, uh, we got a special, special guest we've been waiting on for a while. You guys probably seen a gap in our podcast because we've been waiting on a guy to finish uh, combining. So, uh, uh, and the rain set in and we finally got him nailed down. A friend of ours out in, in, in Missouri, Lynn Farmhires, is our guest uh, today. And uh, we're going to learn a lot about Lynn's background, uh, his operation, and, uh, and how he became the, uh, the data geek that he is. Uh, from college and uh, and how it come through into sheep operations. So, hope you guys enjoy this. Uh, this we're gonna have three or four episodes, and um, man, this is really good stuff. So sit back and enjoy. Well, then, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us. Uh, maybe if you would mind just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're located, and. Um, how you got involved in agriculture and sheep. Okay, well, thanks, guys, for having me on. This is an honor to be on the Sheep Things podcast, but um, you're, you're, y'all are becoming famous, um, and, and that's good. We need more podcasts in agriculture. Um, but, yeah, about me, um, pretty simple story. I was um, born and raised on this farm in Wellington, Missouri, which is about 40 miles east of Kansas City. And um, it's a, I've lost track now. The farm's been in the family for probably 120 years or something like that. So I'm about fourth generation. And um, spent four years down at the University of Missouri, go Tigers. And, um, (laughs) and, Got a degree in ag and um, animal science, actually, with um, basically majors in nutrition and genetics. Um, we came, I came back home and we tripled the size of the grain crop operation. <laughs> and so, you know, great for the degree. But, how did, how uh, did your dad take that? Did he, was he all for that or thinking, oh, you college kid come back here, know it all? <laughs> you know, my dad was pretty cool about most things. Um, he complained to me a lot, I guess, but he always praised me in public. So I, I think, you know, we've, we've done a lot of strange things here. Um, I was an early adopter of no-till. Um, now I'm playing around with regenerative ag and a little organic stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it seems like I've always got to be doing something different. And um, that's kind of how we got involved with sheep. Uh, Don and I got married in 1996, which, so we were both in our thirties and, uh, wanted to start a family and Donna was moving from central Missouri up to Wellington. And so she had to quit her job down at Jeff city. And so it was like, well, instead of getting a job, 
maybe we can expand the farm and, you know, do something to make some money on the farm so she could stay here at home and um, started looking at sheep. I said, whoa, I don't, I'm not going to shear any sheep. And she said, well, I've heard about this strange breed. I don't even know how you pronounce it, but they, they've got hair. And so we started investigating it. And um, back then, you know, back in 96, it was hard to find. I mean, we were kind of lucky, actually, because there was quite a few flocks in Missouri um, after the heifer project dispersed. But, um, but still, you had to drive a ways to find them. So we paid our dues, um, visited four different flocks, and um, put a down payment on some of the next year's lambs with Doug and Laura Fortmire out in Fairview, Kansas. And um, went back in 97, we picked out uh, 12 ewe lambs and one ram lamb. And that's how we got started. And uh, well, if you got to start, that's not a bad place to start from. Bad, that's right. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, I, I, I tell everybody um, I've enjoyed it, it was kind of Donna's project that became my project. I'm not too sure how that happened. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, you know, we love the animals and we love the people we've met. And um, that's probably what's kept us going and um, started off trying to target um, ethnic markets and that's probably not my personality and so um, we've um, then for a while and there was a guy here in Missouri that was buying um, semi-light lambs um, he wanted them about 90 pounds and he was he had a deal with a packer up in Chicago and so he had double decker uh, gooseneck trailer and he about once a month he'd go around picking up lambs as long as people had lambs to sell and he was hauling them up to Chicago and that worked good until he had some health trouble and um, so then um, and we can talk about why this is true later but um, you know I've always been into numbers and genetics and so you know I take a lot of weights at 120 days of age well 120 years they're not light lambs anymore so I kind of, I, it's hard for me to participate in the light land market. So I, that's when I started selling after that. Well, actually, after the Chicago deal fell apart, I had a guy in Kansas City we were selling to, and he was selling at farmer's markets and um, restaurants. And what, about five, six years ago, when the dollar flipped and, and valued to the Australian dollar, um, the imports just became so cheap that he lost the restaurant mm -hmm. business. Um, you know, the restaurant said, you know, we'd love to serve local, but, you know, with the way the exchange rate is now, you're now twice as expensive as what this imported lamb is. And so that fell through. And so that's when I started shipping to Superior. And um, then actually this spring, um, I did sell light lamb because uh, with COVID and Mountain State's Rosen cutting down, I knew that there was going to be a, no one was going to get shackle space at Superior if you weren't, you know, one of their contract customers. So um, we, um, boy, about, as soon as I got the first EBVs back, my lambs were about 75, 80 pounds. And uh, 
I saved a few ram lambs that I thought were going to be good to sell and saved all the ewe lambs I wanted to keep myself um, and took everything else up to St. Joe and sold as light lambs. And we may end up doing that again next year. I, I mean, I, I'd prefer not, but um, here in Missouri, there's no way to sell a fat lamb, in my opinion, uh, at a sale barn. I mean, you can sell them, but you're giving them away. Because all the buyers at the Missouri sale barns are looking for light lambs. Gotcha. So, is is 80, uh, 80 pounds pretty much where the, where the price just falls apart? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what it down. is here too. Yeah. 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 The peak is probably about sixty. Kind of depending on the fucking holiday. That's so tough. You know, and I'm man, I you know, I grew up with cattle and hogs. I still have a hard time understanding this market, but hey, whatever it's right. you know. It's, it's really not for me to right Yeah, it's not for me to figure out, I guess. So anyway, that's, um, you know, we got about 1,700 acres of row crops here, corn, soybeans, wheat. Um, we, sold out, we, we sold the last of the hogs probably 15 years ago. Um, we um, got rid of the cows about four years ago, four or five. And actually, I'm looking at getting back into cattle now, uh, probably regenerative regenerative agriculture deal but uh, we'll do it totally different though we're going we're going to be selecting for basically everything just the opposite of what i was selecting for <laughs> before <laughs> yeah so how do the sheep fit into your operation then do you use them to graze between fields do you have pasture space set aside separate for them or how does that work into your operation uh, if we're just yeah, that's a great question, and it's changed a few times through the years, Caleb, but um, we, uh, right now, we have enough pasture ground for uh, the ewes, so my ewes are on pasture from the middle of April until, well, it's the middle of December right now, and they're still on pasture, and if it doesn't snow, I think mm -hmm. I've got enough grass that we can keep them out there until about the 1st of uh, February when we start landing. So they'll Perfect. only be in the, you know, they're only going to be in a dry lot or a barn lot for about, I don't know what, less than 90 days this year. So it looks like unless we get a big snowstorm in January. But um, and that's the way I want it. Um, but um, grazing cover crops, I've done that before. Um, I haven't got it all figured out yet. Um, fencing is a little bit of a problem. Um, coyote protection once we get them away from the barn. Um, for people that follow me a little bit on Facebook, you'll know I've had some coyote trouble this year. And this is the first year I've had coyote trouble since we got well, our last guard dog died, what, three, four years ago. And we just haven't had any trouble until this fall. And so right now I've got two alpacas out there and, you know, people say, well, are they working? Well, I haven't lost any more sheep, but I also went two weeks without losing any sheep before I got the alpacas. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I don't know how you prove it. I don't know. I guess you prove, how do you prove a positive? You know, I mean, how do you prove they're working 
I, I don't know. You know but, yeah. Um, I'm not yeah, a big fan of guard dogs because yeah, I, I remember coming out. I brought uh, Alberto and Jose out there yeah. after Sedalia, and um, a coyote ran maybe in the edge of a cornfield next to your ewes. And the ewes weren't panicking. You weren't panicking. And I'm like, where's the dog? And you said, well, the my dog died and we've not had any problems. You know, there's a lot of people that think, and maybe it's true, that if you leave that, you know, uh, dominant coyote alone, and so maybe somebody killed your coyote, you know. Well, actually, we're the conservation agent came out and i mean we've got some footprints that we found in the mud the first attack or first set of attacks we're pretty sure were domestic dogs that's my biggest mm. problem and then but so then i got some trail cams and my neighbor actually got rid of the dogs um i appreciated that and but that's also a reason why I don't want guard dogs because I've never been able to keep a guard dog off place. They always run. And I don't want to be, yeah. if I'm the neighbor complaining about roaming dogs, I don't want my dogs to run. Right. Um, and so, but anyway, then we had a little bit of a break and then we had another couple lambs or these were you lambs that were bred actually um, that were killed. And so I got some trail cams and set them up and I got some pictures and they were, the, the second time it was definitely coyotes. Um, but then my neighbor first um, first weekend of deer season, he caught he shot a coyote probably three quarters of a mile from the sheep and we haven't had any trouble since. So you know I, I don't but I, I do believe there's something to that Robert that if you're if your alpha male coyote does not have a taste for lamb, He'll leave the sheep alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially I bush hog. I yeah. bush hog at night a lot, and um, and and it's not unusual for a coyote to follow me around my field. Yeah, follow my bush hog with my lights, and get rabbits as they jump and run. Yeah, and, and my <laughs> sheep being you know right across the fence from us, and not and not have yeah. any problems whatsoever. And, and the first night I'm like, boy, if I could sneak to the house and get my gun. Yeah. And then, then I realized he's just, he's just playing. He, he knows when I go around that field, that bush hog, that rabbits come running. Yeah. So it's like when I turn my tractor on, if he's anywhere close at night, he follows me all night long. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of comical to watch, you know, but I didn't have any problems with him. So my thought Sounds process like on these alpacas, I mean, the alpacas aren't large by any means. Um, mm -hmm. but it appears they're bonding pretty well with the sheep. Um, you know, I may not need them to attack a coyote. I just need them to be enough of a deterrent to make that coyote think, well, a rabbit's going to be easier than trying right. to deal with this alpaca, you know, and, yeah. and just let them keep on walking. So I, we'll see how it works. I don't know, but, um, but so back to the grazing, um, that, that's my only concern with the cover crops is um, when the sheep do get further away, I'll probably need donkeys or or something to graze the cover crops. Mm -hmm. It's certainly a resource that yeah. needs to be investigated. Yeah. Would it ever make sense on uh, on crop ground 
to do more of a permanent field fencing uh, to turn around and graze out? Because I, I, I travel a lot, and, and out in your part of the world, there's, there's millions of acres that are not fenced. And you think, golly, man, look at all the stuff that could could be done. Does, would it ever make sense to? See, I've built enough fence for my sheep um, yeah. for the for the permanent pastures, but not around the crop ground. Um, it, you know, permanent fencing is expensive, and yeah. the nice thing about cows is two strands of the hot water, and yeah. it doesn't even have to be high tensile. I mean, 14 gauge wire strung between some fiberglass posts and, mm-hmm. you know, you can pick it up if you need to. And, and anyway, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to make additional money off of this crop ground, uh, either with cattle or sheep, but um, yeah, fencing and, Keeping them, keeping the, because sheep will, I, I have a hard time keeping sheep in electric fences. They don't get shocked. Mm. You know, the wool, well, that, uh, the hair is too thick, especially in the winter. Yeah, mine, sounds mine like we pay no attention at all. Sounds like we need an EBV for sheep that stay in yeah. fences. So. <laughs> you figure out how to measure that, Caleb, and you'll be rich. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So maybe that kind of leads us to our next topic. Um, what, maybe tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the National Sheep Improvement Program. You mentioned how you, you've always been um, involved with, with genetics and, and animal science. And um, what made you transition from when you first bought those sheep to actually collecting data, submitting it, and um, now well, to level well, you're at? Yeah. Of course. Okay, y'all both know me enough. I, I'm a data geek to begin with. Okay, so um, really, I, I had no idea. <laughs> but um, okay, I have a hog background and a cattle background, and I was raising Yorkshire hogs in high school back in the '70s when they came out with their sow productivity index. And it, I mean, well, it, it's kind of a long story, but basically, they had they sold it. Back in the mid seventies, they have uh, they had what they, the Yorkshires at that time they had what they called their type conference, and the story I heard, of course, I was just in high school, but the story I heard was that there were two type comp. There was always a summer and a winter type conference, and basically art expo, um, but they were they were having two a year, and um, the grand champion boar never was so structurally messed up he never bred a single cell <laughs> wow that was back caleb you won't understand hogs used to be really fat and so then you know of course i won't get into <laughs> well i may <laughs> so i'll make this political statement you know we went through this whole phase of a bunch of nonsense science saying that fat was bad for us. And so we were trying to cut the lard out. And so we had to make the hogs leaner. And they wanted to make them taller. And they did. They made the hogs extremely tall, extremely lean. And they were so unfunctional that 
um, the the they use the sows were having two or three pigs per litter, and the the wow. boars couldn't even breed the sows. And the people the finally the York there was a group of Yorkshire breeders that said enough is enough. We're a maternal breed. We're going to get back to the basics, and they made sure that the judges were told that we're not picking extreme animals as our winners. We want to put some back fat on them. And they came up with this sow productivity index. We had to record how many pigs were born, how many pigs were alive at 21 days and the weight of the litter at 21 days of age. And it was mandatory. If you were going to register, you had to submit the data. And mm -hmm. it, it was, it's actually an amazing story at how fast they turned the breed around back to a maternal breed and uh, animals that were functional and not these tall, extreme, goofy looking things. Um, so I, I live, I went through that uh, in high school. Uh, in college, you know, I, I, mean, I <laughs> I mean, I had graduate level genetics, genetics course. I didn't have probably enough statistics <laughs> before I took it, but I mean, we were figuring breeding values on animals longhand um, in college. Wow. Now it was, they were simple problems, but we were still figuring out breeding values longhand. And um, mm -hmm. I mean, I figured standard deviations on a set of data longhand. So, yeah. <laughs> but so anyway, uh, I have that background, and um, of course, that's when cattle started coming out with estimated um, progeny differences, EPDs, and and so when I started shopping for sheep, I said, well, don't sheep have e EPDs as well? And when I asked Laura Fortmire that, I actually think she hugged me. <laughs> Laura was just thrilled that someone asked that question because Laura and Doug Fortmire were early pioneers, early submitters of data into the original National Sheep Improvement Program. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, it took me a couple of years. Uh, we bought the sheep in 97. Uh, we did not submit. That was about the time it was being switched. Oh, I should know this. Um, I want to say, I, I better not say, but the original program, um, whoever was funding it, whichever college, university was funding it, kind of discontinued it. And that's when Dave, Dr. Dave Nodder picked it up at Virginia Tech. And so there was a couple of years, I don't think we could submit no. data. And then so when Virginia Tech picked it back up, that's when Jim Morgan became the breed data coordinator for the Catalans. And um, so that's when in 2001 was the first year that we were in NSIP. We submitted 2000, the 2000 land crop. Um, I'm not too sure. Anyway, I think I had 60 day weights, but we didn't have 120 day weights. But uh, we at least had birth type and all that information. So, so basically, my NSIP database goes back to 
2000 with links back to the mid 90s with Laura Fortnite's blog. So, um, and then I made some notes. Um, we, um, we actually started taking fecal aid counts um, in 2004. And that was part of a project. I think it was Dr. Settlemont. Or anyway, y'all need to re interview Jim and ask him who actually was in charge of that project. But um, Dave, not once, once, I can't. I can't remember exactly, but I know Paul Rogers was one of the breeders involved. Um, Paul Rogers and I, um, there were a couple other flocks. Kathy might have been involved um, in the early proven. I mean, we had, we developed that EBV from scratch. There, there was nothing before us. And so uh, Dr. Nodder used our data to figure out the, um, um, all the coefficients and, um, and the breeding value so that we could start collect, you know, start getting that EBV. And then Dr. Greiner, uh, he had been scanning sheep uh, there at Lee Wright's um, at the test station at Glade Springs uh, for a couple years. And let me see, he would have started probably that project about 2008 or 2009, and he needed another flock. And I had been talking about scanning. I'd just never done it. And so he encouraged me to scan in 2012. And then between the Virginia Tech flock, I don't know, Lee Wright's personal flock might have been involved in that as well. And my flock, uh, we came up with the estimated breeding values for um, back fat thickness and um, eye muscle depth. And um, so anyway, um, you know, I've, I'm now the chairman of NSIP, and um, I don't know that that's good or bad, but, um, you know, we've got some challenges, but we're working through them, trying to grow the, you know, trying to grow the program, and um, we can, at the end of this interview, we probably ought to talk about genomics a little bit, but I, I'm pretty excited about what's going to happen this spring with Katahdin's and genomics, and uh, how that's going to affect us. And I hope um, it creates enough of a buzz that we can, you know, we're going to pick up quite a few members. But I, uh, it, I mean, interesting. I had in high school and I never did livestock judging in college, but I did a lot of livestock judging for H and FFA. So, I mean, I understand livestock judging and I, I'm all in favor of it. Mm -hmm. Um, my only concern is, and, and you can have the same concern with EBVs, and, and we can talk about this later, but you need to know what you're looking for. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'll say this several times during this interview. Um, you don't try to maximize probably any trait, and you definitely don't try to maximize all of them. Um, that, that's a recipe for disaster. So if you know what you're looking for, uh, I think EBVs do a great job of, uh, eliminating the environmental noise that's um, that's out there as we raise animals, and there's a lot of environmental noise. Yeah, I, I watched a uh, or listened to another sheep podcast, and these guys are traitor. Yeah, I'm just kidding. They're, they're, they are. Uh, <laughs> we were just talking about us being famous earlier. 
So I listen to Spotify uh, when I travel. And uh, Spotify yesterday gave me a list of the music I listen to the most. All right. Who my mm-hmm. top artists are, who my top podcasts are, so on and so forth. And, I, and the guy works with me here at the office. He's a big music guy. So I sent him my screenshot and I, and it showed how many like 4,000 minutes of podcast I've listened to so far this year. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, yeah, my son just got his deal yesterday and your sheep things podcast is his number one podcast. I'm like, we did it. We're number one for somebody. <laughs> uh, but these, these, uh, these other cool. guys are in California and they're, you know, multi-thousand sheep operations. So they, they definitely talk different stuff than most of the Katahdin breeders, you know, that we have talked to. But anyway, they mentioned the when they got to talking about genetics and EBVs, somebody that they interviewed uh, asked about it, and they brought up the progress that the Katahdin breed has made in the last 10 years alone just with EBVs and how important and significant mm-hmm. that was to the sheep industry and and he hoped some. Uh, he hoped several other breeds would take note, uh, you know, and do and follow our lead with technology. So that's that's big stuff. That you know, those guys yeah. wouldn't have a hair sheep for nothing, but they know what we're doing is right, and maybe one of these days makes a difference in their operation. Yeah, I was talking to some wool producers out here and got kind of the same feedback when I mentioned I was raising Katahdins there definitely familiar with it because of all the publicity they've heard about the progress we've made in genetics and um, kind of the seeing Katahdin's in a way is the future of the industry because Katahdin's have been embracing the technology to be able to move the industry forward. Well, so yeah, exciting. let's jump into that. Robert, can I share my screen? Oh, absolutely. Let's see. Uh, you got to enable it, I think. Yeah, I got to figure out here. Did that do it? Um. Maybe. I'm going to make both of you guys co-host. Yes, we can see that. So, you know, I mean, I'll, again, I'll say this several times tonight too, probably. I, there have been times in my sheep selection process that I've had broken focus. Um, I've chased something maybe I should not have chased or I just wasn't chasing anything at all. (laughs) But anyway, um, yeah, if you look at that graph there for a number of lambs weaned, um, that's a pretty nice steady climb that, um, what, 0% to 15% in 10 years, whereas the breed went from about 5 to 8 or 9. So, um yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you do it, if you do it right, it it works really well. So. Yeah, and that's just your average. So your your top of your flock is going to be pulling that average up every year. Yeah. So, that's pretty exciting to see that kind of growth. So yeah, it works. It works if you use it. But um. So yeah, I don't know anything else, Caleb. That's kind of the maybe long version. I don't know my involvement with NSIP. Yeah, no, that's that's great. You mentioned earlier that you weren't sure if it was a, a good or bad thing that you're chairman. I think for all of us, it's a it's a great thing. And for the industry, for you, it's uh, we're grateful you're willing to sacrifice your time to do that because 
Um, it's sure, certainly probably a job that takes a lot of time and thought, but I appreciate the work you're putting uh, in. Yeah, I'd like to mention, um, you know, uh, and thank uh, Lynn for being on the Katahdin board all those years and, uh, and serving as president. And I don't know what other offices you had uh, prior to me coming on the board, but, uh, you know, that's that's always a challenge, getting people to serve the association and, and uh, you know, put in the effort and, and be sincere about stuff, so. Well, thanks guys. Yeah, just, you know, try to serve where I can and try to help the industry out the best I can. We appreciate yeah, it. Definitely. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. It's uh, been neat to hear from Lynn about how he got started in the sheep industry and what made him interested in sheep and genetics and his background in genetics and how that has informed where he's currently at today and what he's currently doing. Stay tuned for the next episodes as we're going to have some really neat content with Lynn as he dives into how to use EBVs and explains a little bit about estimated breeding values, as well as where the National Sheep Improvement Program is going to be going in the future and how that will be improving our industry. So stay tuned for more podcasts uh, with Lynn Farmeyer. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things Podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.